You might notice there's not a verse uh, 44 or 46. This is a, uh, a funny moment, not unusual, but somewhat unusual, that uh, uh, where there is a, a discrepancy in some of the ancient texts. So you'll, you'll recognize as we read it that that section is highly repetitive. And so what is verse 48 here? Uh, a few later manuscripts had written in uh, as verses 44 and 46 as well. Uh, in other words, at some point, some scribe, uh, probably mistakenly, uh, drew the parallelism so close that he was repeating things in the text ahead of it that weren't actually there. So, um, like 99 point something, I forget the statistics, um, numbers of uh, variants we have in the ancient manuscripts, it doesn't change a lick about what it says. Um, but you may happen to notice that there are missing verses. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's for a reason, because the oldest texts don't have those there. So um, just a note for you about textual criticism. So there you go. It's what you all came for <laughs> the church for, I'm sure. Uh, with that, heaven help us. We need new thing. I'm going to go ahead and read. I'm going to, as you all figure this out. All right. Mark 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter, lame, enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, 
Let's go in prayer because we need God's word to speak truth. Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your word. We know that it is given to us in love. It is given to us so that we might know you and have eternal life. So speak to us by it, we pray, by your spirit and in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever been involved in one of these conversations about who is the greatest in, a, in sports, you know, so who's the greatest quarterback? We all know it's Tom Brady. Um, who's the greatest basketball player? We all know it's Michael Jordan. Some of you are living a lie, telling, telling yourselves to somebody else. Um, but seriously, these are dumb conversations. We, we, all, we all know this at some level. Even those of us who get into those arguments, we know that they're dumb conversations. They're dumb because you can't really compare people across different eras. It's nearly impossible for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's dumb because they play different positions. It's dumb because, you know, you, you can list all the reasons. But we do kind of like having those debates, some of us anyway. Um, well, Jesus has stumbled across a dumb debate between his, his followers, his disciples. Uh, they're arguing about who is the greatest. Or actually, they had been arguing about it on the road, and he must have picked up a little bit of something about it, and he asked them about it, and they are too bashful, uh, embarrassed to say what it is. But what emerges... And we're going to see a similar conversation, by the way, in chapter 10. There's... A, there's they don't give up this conversation, uh, despite Jesus' comments here. But what, what emerges out of a conversation about who is greatest is a contrast between religion and the gospel. Things. Um, on the one hand, false religion is self-focused while the gospel is self-effacing. Second, the false religion is competitive while the gospel is constructive. Third, false religion is poisonous while the gospel is peaceful. Self-focused, self-effacing, competitive versus constructive, and poisonous versus peaceful. The self-focused thing is maybe the most obvious here uh, because they're talking about how great they are. And I joke that it's a petty conversation, but it is also a very understandable conversation. Now, if you've been, if we're thinking through the flow of the Gospel of Mark, in, in Mark 8, Jesus has accepted, really for the first time, the title of the Messiah near the end of Mark 8. So his disciples are thinking about Jesus in a different light. He's the Messiah. He is the hope of Israel. He is the one who is guaranteed victory. And guess what? They're, they've given up a ton to follow him. And they're at the ground level of this, this saving work of God. They've sacrificed for it. I mean, of course, they're, gonna, they're important for it. It's not entirely dumb. <laughs> that doesn't make it any less foolish, though. And so Jesus, in verse 35, comes up with one of his famous first and last sayings. <laughs> uh, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And this is, 
Actually, throughout this whole passage we read this morning, there's a few of these stock statements that Jesus has that he uses. Sometimes Jesus changes them up a little bit because he's a traveling teacher. Well, I mean, any teacher really, right? You have sort of a stock of uh, phrases and uh, interrelated ideas that you adapt to different settings and situations, but it's especially true for somebody who's itinerant, who's moving around, teaching different people, right? And so Jesus adapts these, but, uh, but this is one of the classics, right? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's a statement about the dynamics of the kingdom, that the kingdom works differently than the world around us. That God's kingdom is not about being, getting yourself first, getting what you've got coming, but it's about what you can give. And, and then he brings up a child. Uh, another thing Jesus does is use, <laughs> utilize children for illustrations at times. This one, though, is not about being like the child. It is about whether you think of children. Because uh, even more than the modern world, the ancient world did not care about children very much. Uh, the children were a nuisance, by and large, uh, in, for most ancient folks. Uh, so, and a child doesn't have anything to offer you. They've got no power. They've got no authority. Um, so Jesus' point is why are you thinking about how great you are when there's others in need that you could care for? It is about where their attention is, right? Is your attention on yourself? Or is it on those that you could help? It really brings into, into focus then the contrast, right? That on the one hand, you can be focused on yourself. On the other hand, you can be focused on others. Uh, but we're all pretty selfish, <laughs> Uh, it's actually kind of ironic, too, that Jesus even uses the illustration of children because the younger you are, the more self-focused you are, right? Um, part of maturing is learning to take into account other people. Um, but you can still, of course, have that sort of wider perspective but still be selfish, still be self-focused. People then become ends to accomplish, you know, means to accomplishing your ends, uh, we see this happen, of course, individually. We've all known selfish people, that it's kind of a defining feature of their life. But we're all selfish in some way ourselves. The more selfish we are, probably the more blind we are, ironically. But you can also be selfish for your group, right? A kind of group identity. We'll see in a minute how, the, the, how concerned the disciples are for their kind of group identity, and we know what kind of evils that brings, racism, classism, sexism, I mean, you know, we can go on and on and on. And we've seen this week, in fact, the bad fruit of this kind of selfishness, uh, pseudo-justice that was focused on taking what was ours, what is mine. little surprise then that people try to drag Jesus into it as well. 
carrying signs as insurrectionists about Jesus saving crosses as symbols of him to reclaim what is ours. It's not the first time, of course, Jesus has been brought into uh, people's selfish agendas, and I'm, I'm sure it will not be the last. But Jesus knows nothing of it. Those who are focused on themselves and demanding what they believe is theirs is not the gospel. It is another religion. And we know that it isn't that way because that is not how Jesus lives. You see, Jesus embodies an entirely different way of thinking about yourself in the world. Jesus doesn't think about what's best for him. He thinks about what others need from him. It's the very heart of the gospel. That isn't an ancillary thing. That is what drives Jesus, is thinking about us instead of himself. It's the very heart of humility. Because, and that's why in Jesus' kingdom, it is better to give than to receive. That is why it is better to be last than to be first. Which is little wonder why Jesus talks about having to give up, having to sacrifice things for the sake of the kingdom. Because the way that the kingdom works is not by thinking of yourself first and what you think you need or deserve, but putting others first. In fact, I mean, mean, it's really important to understand this, right? Because we are urged on every side, not just on one side of the political divide or another, we are urged on every side to think of yourself first. To think of your own interests before others. Look out for number one. Look out for yourself. Look out for your group. People will take advantage of you. But the most powerful movement of justice in America embodied just the opposite of that. And we think back to the civil rights movement. This is what it was all about. The leaders of the civil rights movement, I mean, not surprisingly, many of them Christian, knew that it involved sacrifice. And not just generally that it was going to be hard. Because this is, this is what Martin Luther King said on the night before he was assassinated. A speech he gave the night before he was assassinated. He talked about how he was getting threats and all this, you know, all this stuff, which was pretty routine uh, by then. He was being threatened all the time. And he, says, I, he said, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter to me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I'd like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. Even justice demands sacrifice. We think that we have to claim what is ours 
But the way of the kingdom is to give what you have for others. The false religion is self-focused. The gospel is self-effacing. False religion is also competitive, while the gospel is constructive. It's it's strange in verse 38, Jesus has just talked about the last being first and the first being last, and John sort of interrupts him and says, but you know, but we saw this guy who was casting out demons in your name, and we we needed to set him straight because he wasn't, we hadn't authorized him to do that. He wasn't part part of our group. It's almost as if that, you know, I mean, it's not entirely clear, but you kind of imagine, right, that that was the point, that's how they got into the argument in the first place. They were upset, threatened by the presence of somebody that wasn't one of them doing something for God's kingdom, and that, you know, got them into their own infighting, right, about who was the greatest. Because, you see, they... Jesus had authorized them, specifically in chapter 6, to cast out demons, but that, of course, didn't mean that Jesus wouldn't let others cast out demons in his name. But the disciples had imagined that this made them special, that this made them unique. And if others can do this, right, if, if the kingdom is bigger than their circle, or maybe their imagined hierarchy of Jesus and then them and then those that they authorize, right? If it wasn't quite that neat, if it wasn't quite that in control for them, it was a threat. And so Jesus responds, right, that the kingdom is bigger than they are. He says, leave, you know, leave that guy alone, right? Like he's, uh, uh, okay, yes, maybe he hasn't been trained as much as you, Maybe there's aspects of his theology that aren't quite squared away. But if he's doing it in my name, he'll be part of what we're doing. Which leads Jesus to, to another one of these weird sayings that he's adapted. Because he says in, uh, in what is it, uh, verse 40, For the one who is against us is for us. Which is a variation on him saying seemingly the opposite. In a couple of other places where he says, that uh, whoever is not with me is against me. A classic illustration of a motif, right, that Jesus plays with and turns around to, to seemingly opposite goals. But of course here, what's really helpful to see is that Jesus isn't talking about himself. He says, whoever isn't against us. He says, fine. If you want to talk about the group of disciples, okay, you're not the circle of the kingdom. The kingdom is not limited to the 12 of you. Or the 12 of you plus, you know, the others that are, kind of, we, you know, we do know there was kind of a group that was a, lar- a little larger that was following Jesus around. It's not, it's not limited to that. So if you want to draw a dividing line, it's not about who's in or out of this group. Again, elsewhere he'll say the dividing line is who is with me. 
which is a different thing. And again, if you, if, you, if you remember that the disciples have given so much, and they're, they're going to bring it up, not in this passage, but later on, they'll bring up about how much they've given for the kingdom. Jesus says, look, you know, even if somebody gives a drink of water, he'll be rewarded. You can see their, their mindset is competitive, right? They're, they're thinking about their group and you got to be part of this or else you're against us, right? In the kingdom of God, you got to be part of this thing or you're against us. And even within themselves, even when they've drawn the circle pretty tight of who's in the kingdom and who's out, they still can't help but compete with one another. The illustrations of this abound in the church, don't they? I mean, I, I used to be in campus ministry, and um, the, the, the unfortunate reality of campus ministry is that you're kind of competing with each other, because uh, you're in this weird bubble that is college. And, um, and you know, I, I, there, was a, there was like the big group on campus, and, uh, and for lots of reasons which I could enumerate for you, but probably shouldn't. Uh, I was continually frustrated with this group. But woe to me if I thought that we had it all figured out and God wasn't at work there. I still think my concerns are serious. But woe to me if I think I get to define the boundaries of the kingdom of God. Of course, denominations live this out, don't we? Uh, our little Presbyterian church in America, and it is little in the grand scheme of things, it's easy for us to think we've sort of got it figured out. Maybe us and a few sort of... Uh, closely related denominations, and, and that's it. Uh, you know, even it, if we're just thinking geographically, right? I mean, it's easy to find competitors in other churches. You know, the strangest thing happens to even in within a denomination, and the PCA lives this, right? It's easy to think of like, well, my really specific vision exactly what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like is the way it should be. And not like those other guys. I mean, I've certainly been in my own dust-ups within our presbytery, within my old presbytery, over ideas about what the church should and shouldn't be doing and all these other things. But woe to me if I think I get to define the borders of the kingdom. I know that we have to have some standards. <laughs> Not blind to this, right? Um, we don't get to disregard Scripture. We need to have Jesus at the center of it. But is my assessment of others who are reading God's word, 
who are preaching Jesus? Woe to me, woe to us, if we're not generous with them. We want to be wise in God's word, but we should also be innocent in our accusation of others. When you're focused on yourself, you become competitive with others. You'll naturally need to prove that your interests are more important than others. But once again, this gets us back to the gospel. Jesus did not consider himself a competitor. He thought about all that he could give for you and me to build us up, to redeem us. transform us. And the third contrast then comes into view. False religion is poisonous while the gospel is peaceful. Jesus uh, keeps going with this, right? He, he, he talks about, you know, how he, look, it's still, it's still great if somebody gives a cup of water for the kingdom, uh, that's, that is still wonderful. But then he goes to warn them, right? That it is grievous to look at those who need your help, who don't have much to offer, and to cause them to stumble. I mean, it's a graphic image. The, 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 set, the set of images that follow this are just graphic, right? It would be better to have a huge stone tied around your neck and be thrown in the river. And if you're going to sin that way, if it's your hand causing you, you better cut it off. If it's your foot, cut it off. If it's your eye, tear it out. Again, that's another motif. That's another motif Jesus plays with in a bunch of different places is what you should be willing to give up for the sake of the kingdom. Because it would be better to lose all those things. It'd be better to be maimed than find yourself on the losing end of judgment. And he starts with that salt metaphor initially in verse 49 is the idea that, you know, if you had, if you had meat and of course, you didn't have a refrigerator. You would salt everything immediately to try to preserve it. So everything gets salt. <laughs> that's, that's meat, anyway. Uh, and Jesus is saying, look, so everything gets judgment in the same way. And look, the hope of the gospel, if you're following with Jesus... Thus far, and we, we've seen over and over and over again how all these things are, are, are realized in Jesus. All the demands of the law are realized in him. And this is our hope. That we pass through judgment, not because we lived up to it, not because we 
excel at taking the last place. <laughs> at looking not because we are the best, but because Jesus is salt enough to cover all of us. And so Jesus then t- takes that salt metaphor and changes the referent. This is a little disorienting as you move into verse 50. Because he's just mentioned salt as this idea of judgment. Then he talks about salt again, but seems to change what he's talking about. Uh, so you've got to follow with him. It's, salt is another image that Jesus uses a bunch of times. <laughs> the, so follow with him, right? He's saying, look, uh, well... In ancient Israel, they used to get most of their salt from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is in the south of Israel. It is below sea level. It is what the Jordan River empties into, and it has no outlet uh, because it's so low, and it's hot, and so it evaporates, so the water is salty. Hardly anything can live in it. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. They used to get their salt from there, but they didn't have ways of really refining salt. So you'd get, a big, chunk, you'd get big chunks of salt, but they would have all these minerals in it too. It'd be all mixed in together. So the idea of salt losing its saltiness is you'd have this hunk of salt, but eventually all the sodium chloride would be gone. You would have rubbed it on things long enough, and it's just kind of, it's just a rock (laughs) of minerals, right? That's all you would have left. And it wasn't good for anything at that point. All I could do is throw it out. And Jesus is saying now in verse 50 then that the salt that ought to flavor, that to preserve us in peace. He makes that crystal clear. So that instead of a self-destructive, a poisonous path of false religion, where we are convincing ourselves that we are better than others, when we're focused on our own interests, when we live by the way of the gospel, and we are looking after the interests of others, when we are thinking constructively about how to help them out, then we sow peace in our lives. Our whole lives will be flavored with peace. And you may remember back to our Advent series that when the Bible talks about peace, it's not merely talking about the absence of strife. It is talking positively about actually living in a way that's loving towards one another. Actually living in a way in which we think of others before ourselves. And so I think if we summarize all this, and I'll admit there's a lot going on in this passage, it comes down to this. False religion asks the question, what must I do? What do I have to do? What is demanded of me? It is a view of God that is transactional. What do I have to do to get in is the first question. Right? What do I have to do to get in to this group of the people that are being saved? And then afterwards, it's like, well, what do I have to do to maintain membership here? What do I have to do? Or, and here's the odd thing. If you have that mindset, you might be still anxious about how you keep up appearances, or you might go the other way and say, well, I'm in. Now I don't have to do anything. Now nothing's got 
claim on my life. I got Jesus, I'm good. I'm free to run after whatever it is I want. The opposite asks, what can I do? What do I have the privilege of doing? The gospel thinks about options <laughs> to constructively loving others. It thinks of it as a privilege because it is rooted in, you know, the gospel, this kind of gospel action is rooted in Jesus because he gave up glory for us. He gave up the most profound love, unbroken. The most profound power, compromised. All that for us. And if that wasn't enough, as a man, he gave up his life. And if you've been loved that much, if you've received somebody else, that doesn't leave you unchanged. Because that turns all of those questions about, you know, how am I supposed to live my life, it turns them away from being demand and it makes them a privilege. That I have the privilege to care for others. I have the privilege of not having to worry about where I rank. I have the privilege of forgetting what I think are, are my rights, my privileges. And thinking about all that I have to give to others, to give for them. And this is why in the New Testament, over and over and over again, the sufferings and sacrifices of following Jesus are constantly reframed. Let me give you a few examples. They're all from Paul, who suffered quite a bit for Jesus. In Romans 8, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, uh, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In Philippians 3, he says, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So don't listen to the politicians and pundits. the advertisers, the influencers, even your family and friends who urge you to focus on yourself. Comparing your situation to others. Following this poisonous path. Instead, listen to Jesus who laid down his life for you and learn to think of others first. Treat others generously, peacefully, because it's not a burden, it's a privilege. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that Jesus 
has done for us, all that he has given on our behalf. We are we're often distracted away from it. The wisdom of the world would tell us to focus on ourselves, to put our own interests before others, to take what is ours. But Jesus has showed us a different way. He has showed it to us in his body and in his blood, given to save us, and to show us that it is really better to give than to receive. It is better to be last than first. Because these light and momentary afflictions are gaining for us an eternal weight of glory. We thank you for the privilege of loving you and loving others ahead of ourselves. Teach us to see it not as a burden, but as becoming Christ-like. We ask in his name. Amen.